I couldn't find the phone. I'm half blind, and it was under some of my feathers. From our studios in Lollapalooza Studios, New York City, I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Stories unearthed. Stories earthed. Stories to be touched. Stories to touch you. Stories that sing, or have been sung, in song. Listen out for them. Maybe before you listen to this. Stories. Cold Case Crime Cuts is a production of NAR, National American Radio in collaboration with the Surface-to-Air Sound Collective and our friends over at Soluble Radio in the UK. Find them on Twitter at Soluble Radio. Episode 1, at the COPA. Cuba. Famed for its missile crisis and its libre. You'll have heard about its capital city, Havana, from perhaps maps, but as a city in common with other cities, it has many more than its fair share of hot bars. And there are plenty of hot bars north of Havana, too. Yet each of these bars is surely tepid in temperature compared to the hottest bar of them all, the Copacabana. The Copacabana was perhaps the hottest bar of all the bars that were north of Havana. And back in its heyday, it was also the scene of a crime triangle with love as each of its three sides. Love, lust, and one other side. This is a tale of that love, yellow feathers in hair, and a dress that is shrouded in mystery. And a shroud that is dressed in mystery too. Why a dress? that's part of the mystery. Why a shroud? Because someone ended up dead. This is the story of Lola, Rico, and Tony, a Havana Go hero who apparently ended his days in both tragedy and a heap on the floor of the bar. Like I said, it's a mystery. From Lollapalooza Studios, I'm Mason Lane. Welcome to Crime Case Cold Cuts. Hi, it's Mason Lane. Just stopping by my own podcast to say, if you're enjoying this podcast, why not check out another podcast from the same stable? Podcast from the same stable is the story of two kidnapped horses who were kidnapped from the same stable one mystery night in 1982. What happened to them? Why were they kidnapped? Was the CIA involved? And what of their trainers? And why were they even wearing trainers? In America, we call them sneakers. But just who was sneaking around the same stable as the horses that evening? It's a riddle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a conundrum, wrapped in sneakers and two horse blankets. Podcast from the same stable is presented by me, from the same stable the horses vanished from, as we take the blankets and sneakers off and uncover the whole story. Podcast from the same stable is brought to you by our friends in Lollapalooza Studios, New York City, a product of National American Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mason Lane. Havana, Cuba. The Northern Quarter. On the corner opposite a mural of a man smoking a Cuban cigar is an actual man smoking an actual Cuban cigar. That's hardly surprising. Cuba is the home of Cuban cigars. They're even named after the place. The smoke curls into the air around the sounds of horns from classic Cuban cars. Buicks, Fords, Dodges, Studebakers. A woman in Cuban heels passes by on her way to work. She works in a bar, but it's not just any bar. It's a bar 1,312 miles as American Airlines Flight AA-2268 flies away from another bar, the Copacabana, in New York, which, back in the day, wasn't just any bar, but the bar. A smoky, joint-filled joint, where Cuban and Latin American dancing like the merengue and the cha-cha attracted lowlifes to the high life and vice versa. It sat on the road, slightly set back from itself in a cluster of other buildings, unremarkable from the outside, but the opposite on the inside. 
There was dancing, there was music, there were cocktails and there were feathers. And there was Tony and Rico and Lola. Don't look for it now. It's not there. In its place these days is a thrift store, a disco, we'll come to that later, and a podcast studio. It's not a great podcast studio either. Just a couple of cheap USB mics and a laptop, and the guy that runs it just records straight into GarageBand and doesn't use compression on the final mix. He doesn't know how. It's not a great place. Back in the day, though, this address was a great place. At least, it was if you liked bars. It was a great bar. That's what everyone says. Even Brad, who runs the thrift store whose counter these days is, give or take, where the restrooms were back then. Brad's a cool guy. Late 60s, hair, although it's going. He's got those kind of eyes that you see, too. Well, I've been selling thrift here since day one of when we opened. Brad's thrift store is past the best of its heyday. It's kind of a metaphor for the neighborhood and his hair. Folks don't buy so much thrift these days, not since the internet. One night, many years also before the internet, Brad was standing almost exactly where he is now, having a urinate. He remembers hearing a commotion from right over by the display of used shoes, which was the corner of the bar at the time. I know one pair has Cuban heels. I smiled to myself. Also at the time was a wall between where Brad was and where the commotion was taking place, but there isn't now. And Brad can clearly see in his mind's eye and remember in his mind's mind exactly what happened. All kinds of people came into that bar. It was the place to be seen and to be seen to be seen to dance. Merengue, cha-cha, that kind of thing. It was music and passion. Music and passion were always the fashion back then. It was hot in the bar that night. Brad remembers the heat. It's hardly surprising, too, as the Copacabana prided itself on being the hottest spot north of Havana. It was known for being hot, certainly among the clientele. There was steam coming off my urine. Some background might be useful here. Steam comes off urine because it's hot, real hot. It exits the human body at body temperature, on average 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. This means that when the urine comes out of the urinary tract, called the urethra, it can feel warm on the skin that it touches, including the genitals, hands, and or legs. In cold temperatures, the person may observe steam rising from urine. But why was it cold in the restroom of the hottest bar north of Havana? Surely the restroom of a hotspot would also be hot, on account of its proximity to the aforementioned hotspot. Not necessarily. This is Dr. Sarah Lee Capston. She's an expert in evolutionary biology at the Evolutionary Biology Department of Harvard University. But crucially, she also once worked as a toilet cleaner, back when she was a grad student. She did it for extra cash. It was no big deal. Restroom windows could, and often were, be left open. If the restroom was at the end of a corridor, then there's a chance that any heat from a hot bar wouldn't altogether reach the restrooms, and if a window was open in the restroom, then, despite the bar being the hottest spot north of, for example, Havana, and of, for another example, it was cold outside, there's a chance that the temperature in the restroom could be lower than that of the urine exiting the human body. Which could explain the steam that Brad saw rising from his expelled fluid. Men's bathrooms are horrible. So, when the crime at the crux of the Copacabana case occurred, Brad was in the bathroom. Like any bathroom in any bar, we might or might not revisit it later in the story. And that window? It opened onto the parking lot, which is probably why Brad thought he heard a gunshot. A gunshot later revealed to be the sound of a backfiring car. At first, I honestly thought it was a gun going off rather than a backfiring car. It was hard to hear clearly over my urine as I drunk a lot of beer. When I looked out of the window, it was definitely a car, not a gun. Cars used to backfire all the time in those days. You don't hear it so much anymore. But back then, it was commonplace. It was usually a result of poor fuel metering. 
Cooter Stoop is a mechanic, the kind that works with cars all the time. He's got a sort of dirty hat with a John Deere logo on it and those heavy-duty gloves you sometimes see hanging out of the back of the rear pocket of a pair of worn jeans, hanging out of the rear pocket of his pair of worn jeans. The reason cars don't backfire so much anymore is that with modern fuel injection and processor-controlled engine management, it kind of eliminates inadequate carburetor adjustment and or ignition timing. Cooter would say that. He's a mechanic. So that's probably why he did say it. And it's all true. We checked. He has no further part in the story. But in those days, cars did backfire. Often all the time. And the one that backfired that night in the parking lot of the Copacabana, the one Brad thought at first was a gunshot, possibly belonged to a murderer. A murderer stepping out of a backfiring car and possibly packing a gun. His name was Rico. He wore a diamond. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before that gap, we met Rico. A recap. Rico wore a diamond. Here, the story grows hazy because no one can recall where. Certainly he wore it at the Copacabana. But where did he wear it on his body? Details are sketchy. But what they can recall is that when Rico walked out of what could have been his backfiring car and into the Copacabana that night, it was to set in motion a chain of a string of a sequence of events that would lead to exactly where Lola is now. Oh yes, Lola. Remember Lola? The one who wore a dress cut down to there? Feathers. She's kind of important to the story. And remember the substandard podcast studio from the beginning? The one next door to Brad's thrift store where the guy doesn't know how to correctly use compression? Well, next to that is the car parked from outside the toilets earlier. Remember the car park? The one with the backfiring car. Well, it's not a car park either these days. That was 30 years ago. Now it's that disco I mentioned before. But not for Lola. Lola, who was a showgirl. It all comes back to Lola. It was time to talk to the one-time star of the show. Hi, Lola. It's Mason Lane from the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast. Hello? Back when they used to have a show at the Copacabana, Lola was a showgirl. Perhaps the showgirl. Certainly she's the only one mentioned by name in this tragic tale. She had yellow feathers in her hair, along with that dress I mentioned. And I wasn't the only one who mentioned it either. Back in the day, it was also mentioned by Rico, the possible backfiring car-owning diamond wearer from earlier. According to witnesses, he noticed the dress the moment he was escorted to his chair and saw Lola dancing there. And that's when the trouble started. So Lola, can you tell me what you can tell me that you remember about that night? I love my job. I'm sorry, Lola, could you ask them to turn the music down? Only... It's a disco! I know, only I thought during the day it might be quieter. It's a disco. It's now a disco. We've established that. But because of a difference in the cost of square meterage back then versus the modern cost of an entertainment license based on that measurement, what was the Copacabana Bar is also now Brad's thrift store, and that podcast studio I mentioned. The one with the inadequate facilities. That said, it was time to book their studio. If only so we can get Lola out of the disco to try and hear what she has to say. I'm sorry about that. We couldn't hear you before. It's a disco! Lola told me that these days she spends all of her time in that disco, just sitting at the bar. So, if we can pick up where we left off? I can still hear the disco. Yes, I know, I'm sorry. The walls aren't soundproof. The studio you're in has inadequate facilities. What can you remember about that night? Well, I remember we worked from 8 till 4. We all did. Myself, Tony... Tony was your boyfriend. Tony was so handsome. Oh, my beautiful Tony, he always tended for us. We fell in love at the Copa. The Copa. That's what they called the Copacabana in those days. Copa was short for Copacabana. Ah, we were young and we had each other. Who could ask for more? We were all we had back then and it was each other. Each other and... Uh, 
You still wear the dress? I still wear the dress. Is it still cut down to there? <laughs> sure is. I had to take Lola's word for it. You're probably wondering why I didn't speak to Lola in person, maybe around the time of my visit to Brad's thrift store next door to the disco in the podcast studio. Truth be told, I would have. But for a podcast, it's good to throw in the odd phone call, because it adds audio variety to what is otherwise just a series of voices all recorded in a similar way. It's the same reason we put music in. You might also wonder why, given that Lola was now in a studio, we were still using a phone. But like I said, the podcast studio isn't so great, and on the day I spoke to Lola, no one could find the right cable. So, I used to work the 8th of 4 shift, and in truth, there was only one shift, and that was it. And I'm dancing, and out of the corner of one of my merengue moves, I remember I see this guy walk in. That was Rico, Diamond Guy. One of the other girls escorted him to his chair, and he was kind of staring at me. I, I think... Tony saw it, and I guess that's when the trouble started. It's hard to say where the chair was. This is thrift store Brad again, and he's right. Though we can pinpoint roughly where the bar and the restroom were back then, that's not so easy with a chair. Thirty years and people's memories of the exact locations of chairs fade. A chair moves. It's not a fixed object. Or at least, they weren't in the Copa. Sometimes in prisons or shopping mall food courts, they're bolted to the ground, but at the Copacabana, they were free to move. And so was Lola, which is why she caught Rico's eye, just as sure as the lights were catching his diamond. It might have been where the rubber gloves are now. Brad's still talking about the chair. I finished my dance, and then this guy calls me over. This is Rico again. Not speaking, Lola speaking. She's talking about Rico. He's the diamond guy. I should have ignored him. There were a lot of guys like him around the club, but they... They tip big, you know, and uh, Tony and me, we relied on tips, and we needed the money. Tony and Lola were just like any kids, like you and me when we were kids. It's the age-old, same old story. Two kids in love, working hard. Their story isn't unique. I used to work on the docks. That's Tommy. He and his girlfriend Gina were in the same boat, although despite him working on the docks, it wasn't an actual boat, but a metaphorical one. They were young. They were in love. But then one day, the union went on strike, and it was tough. So tough. Gina worked the diner all day. Tommy says Gina brought home her pay for love. For love. We had to hold on to what we've got. To Tommy and Gina, it made no difference if they made it or not. To be honest, Tommy and Gina's story is another story. Possibly for another podcast for another day. I mention it only because it's another example of two kids just like Lola and Tony, or just like any of us, trying to make ends meet. But unlike just like any of us, their end, certainly Tony's, was to meet in murder. We'll take a break. In part two, Rico goes a bit too far. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about one of our main sponsors here on Cold Case Crime Cuts, and that's Panels International. Panels International is a unique amalgamation of business practices combining one-to-one -one interaction with skilled craftsmen with a support framework provided by a global intermediary. Whether they're for floors, kitchen cupboards, disciplinary hearings, or cupboards, Panels International matches each customer to a manufacturer in their area. And, speaking from experience, the quality is unmatched. The soundproofing at our Cold Case Crime Cut Studios here in Lollapalooza was refurbished through Panels International. Other podcast studios should take note. Find them online at panels-international.com for a discount. So I thought, what's the worst that can happen? It's not like he's got a gun. Welcome back from Lollapalooza Studios. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. I'm Mason Lane. I'm speaking with Lola. She was a showgirl, but that was 30 years ago when they used to have a show. 
These days, she sits where the show used to be at the former Copacabana nightclub, which is now a disco, and also a thrift store and an inferior podcast studio. Full disclosure, the Copa had a big real estate footprint, so they sold it off in parts. One night, this guy, his name was Rico, showed up, and even though Lola thought what was the worst that could happen, the worst did happen, and it happened that night. You thought what was the worst that could happen, but the worst that could happen did happen, and that turned out to be pretty bad, right? Rico went a bit too far, and that was when Tony got involved. Let's recap. The Copa is busy. Lots of clientels. Usual kind of night. Tony is Lola's boyfriend who tends the bar. When he saw Rico going a bit too far, he didn't stop to ask questions. What he did stop doing was mixing drinks and putting peanuts in small bowls. Instead, witnesses at the time say he sailed across the bar. Not literally, of course. Although, with all the time that's passed, there's no proof of that. He sailed across the bar. Not literally. I can't say for sure. Probably not. To be honest, it was absolute mayhem. This is Tiff Pahoho. Tiff was in the bar that night. She was with friends to hang out, get a drink, just have a good time. You know, like people in bars do. She was a kind of a regular. She knew Tony to say hello to and Lola to dislike on account of her dress. Tiff's still alive, which is how we were able to speak to her. She lives across town now and is married, although not to anyone relevant to the story. So this guy who wore a diamond, I don't remember where. Other witnesses say he wore it in the Copacabana. Uh, Sure, but I don't remember where on his body. Okay. I learned afterwards his name was Rico. Anyway, when they escorted him to his chair, he was watching this girl with her dress. Lola. The dress didn't suit her. But after her dance, I think it was like Cuban or Latin American, the merengue or the cha-cha. Sure. After she finished, he called her over because I think maybe one of her feathers had gotten in his drink. And, well, he just went a bit too far. How far? On a scale, I mean. Like eight far? Nine far? Too far. Like I said. And that's when Tony sailed across the bar? I was right there. I could see everything. Awful. How far into the fight did the gun go off? I'm not talking about the fight. I'm talking about her dress. What happened next is a matter of police record. Tiff was a direct witness. Brad from the restroom then and the thrift store now wasn't, because he was urinating. And remember, all he heard was a car backfiring, not a gunshot, rather than the other way around. And other statements taken at the time corroborate what happened. Tony sailed, probably not literally, across the bar. Punches flew and, also according to those statements, chairs were smashed in two. Remember, these weren't the kind of chairs that were fixed to the floor like in a prison or a food court. These were the kind of chairs that were easily broken. Tiff Pahoho wasn't far away from some of those chairs. She may have even been sitting on one, and today, looking at a floor plan of the thrift store I showed her, she thinks it was probably near where Brad's stock of secondhand gloves is now. All of this begs another question, or rather, an answer. The question is already here. No one needs to beg for it. It needs answering before we go any further, because if I'm wrong about something, then we may have to start this investigation again. And no one wants that. It's all to do with Tony's movements that night. Not possible. Caractacus Pomplamus is a sailor. Not just any sailor. He's a sailor with decades of boats to his interesting name. He was all at sea when I spoke to him, but only literally. As other than that, he was perfectly lucid on the satellite phone. For many reasons, it would be difficult to attempt to sail across a bar. What kind of bar was it? A hot bar. Not flooded? No. Well, there you are. In my experience... Air, no matter how hot, would not be able to support the hull of a water-faring vessel of any kind, and certainly not one of full sail. But what about, say, a rigid inflatable? Size? Big enough to hold a bartender? I'd still say not. It would just sit on the bar rather than transverse it. What if someone or someone's pushed it? Then it's not sailing, which renders the point moot. In my view, there's a dolphin. Sorry? 
bad line. No, I was just telling you I can see a dolphin. Uh, but as regards anyone sailing across a bar, no, sir, no way. If it's not flooded and there's next to no ingress of water at the level that would bear the weight of the keel of a yacht, then his movements that night are restricted to jumping, possibly leaping across the bar, but definitely not sailing. So we can rule that out. It also tallies with the police report, which made no mention of a nautical craft of any kind. I'm Mason Lane, and you've heard me mention a gun. Up to this point of the night in question, there had been a club, a girl, a dance, a Tony, a dress, a chair, more than one, and a guy, Rico, who wore a diamond. There was also a fight, but things went south pretty quickly after that. Officer John Chupacabra was the first member of law enforcement on the scene, and these are his words. We got the call that there had been a fight at the Copacabana. Officer Chupacabra is retired, but 30 years ago he was just tired, as he was nearing the end of his shift. He's a good guy, keeps himself trim playing racquetball, and he's got a dog called Gavin, which is kind of a strange name for a dog. But retired officer Chupacabra says he got Gavin from a rescue place, and he was already called Gavin, so it made sense to let him keep the name. So I guess I'm on patrol, and when the call came in, I was only a couple blocks away. To be honest, we were almost right outside because... It was quite a big real estate site at the time. These days, there's some kind of thrift store and a disco on that site, and I, I don't know what the other place is. It's a podcast studio. Sure. Not well, a great one, to be honest. Anyways, the call came in, and me and my partner... Officer Chupacabra's partner declined to be interviewed for this podcast as he passed away in 2007. We were first on the scene, and we quickly established there had been punches flew and chairs were smashed in two. They were the kind of chairs that could be easily weaponized, not fixed or anything like the ones you get in a prison or a food court. And everyone was screaming. The witness transcripts back this up. People were screaming, and they were screaming for a reason. And the reason they were screaming was blood. There was blood. Blood and a single gunshot. But one question remains unanswered. Actually, more than one question remains unanswered, such as where was Lola's dress cut down to? Where exactly did Rico wear his diamond? And why would you build a podcast studio that wasn't fully soundproof? But the question that remains most unanswered is this. On that fateful night, when Lola finished her dance and Rico went a bit too far, causing Tony to sail, smart money says jump, across the bar, and when punches flew and chairs were smashed in two, and then there was blood and that single fatal gunshot, just who shot who? We'll be right back. We're back. It was time to call up Lola again. It had been a year since we'd first spoken, and now, after all my subsequent investigations, it was finally time to catch up. Hello? Hey, Lola. It's Mason Lane. From Cold Case Crime Cuts? The podcast? We spoke before. About what happened that night at the Copacabana? I like cucumber sandwiches with the crust cut off. Lola comes across as so refined. But time has, and the events have, at the Copa has and have both taken their toll. She turned increasingly to drink and drank so much drink that, sadly, she drank herself half-blind. She told me that's why it took her a long time to answer the phone. I couldn't find the phone. Sure. Couldn't see it. I'm half-blind. And it was under some of my feathers. It was time to come straight out with it. I'd spoken to witnesses. Those that were there at the time, they were the witnesses. A police officer on the scene, Brad who runs the thrift store that's there now, and to the owner of the podcast studio that's also there. 
His interview didn't make it into our podcast because he had a defective microphone. But Lola was right there, right in the middle of when it happened. It was her guy, Tony, that was involved. And the other guy, Rico, the one who wore the diamond, that went a bit too far with Lola in the first place. It all comes back to Lola. Lola is the key. Lola, I have to ask you this. It's about that night at the Copacabana. We know there was blood. We know that there was a single gunshot. But just who shot who? Hello? Lola, can you hear me? She'd lost her mind. She was the key to it all, and now that key is locked. Possibly forever. As a direct result of the tragedy that night at the Copacabana, and probably also as a result of my investigation dragging it up again, Lola was in no position mentally to speak to me, nor visually to find her phone very quickly. It was, she told me, all a blur. We know she lost Tony. The evidence tells us that. But now it seems that she simply can't remember whether she lost him as a result of death, carelessness, or her drinking. There was a shooting, that much we know. But as to who shot who, therein lies the mystery. When I first started this investigation, I'd assumed Rico shot Tony, but the facts, like Lola's eyes these days, remain murky. No one was even arrested. The evidence just wasn't there. Purdy Capstone is a New York lawyer. She's been looking at the case for cold case crime cuts. What have we got? A fight. Lovers. A tiff. Tiff was the witness from earlier. The one who hated Lola's dress. A witness. That was Tiff. Untethered chairs. Sure, we know Tony the bartender was lost. Lola lost her Tony, we have that on record. But the definition of lost in this case? Also lost. There's been assumptions, but what do they say? Assumptions make an asshole out of everyone. Without more of the facts, who knows what really happened that night? And who knows who shot who at the Coca Cabana? I was frustrated. This podcast is of a set length, yet we haven't been able to solve the Copa crime with any degree of certainty. But when you only have the facts of the case as presented to go on, well, that's all you have to go on. With fewer than maybe five minutes of the podcast left to go, I decide to speak to Lola one last time. In person. I'm walking towards where there's now that disco. The one where the Copa's car park used to be. If it was still there, I'd be able to look into that restroom window at Brad. Thrift store Brad. Having a urinate 30 years ago. But I won't do that because it's not there anymore. And also because I wouldn't want to. It's morning, and instead I can see Brad behind the counter in his thrift store, roughly on the site of where those restrooms were. He's not urinating this time. He's carefully tidying his display of cheap rubber gloves and secondhand footwear. There's also now a shelf of other gloves, more of a workman's type, and are adjacent to the rubber ones. These gloves are the same kind of gloves Cooter Stoop, the mechanic from earlier, had in his jeans pocket. He probably bought them here, although that possibly isn't recently, and it isn't in any way suspicious or connected to the Copacabana. The podcast studio is closed. I don't know if that's because of the hour or whether it's permanent. I hope it's the latter. Otherwise, the street is quiet. But I know where to find Lola. The disco never closes. When I walk in, she's sitting there at the bar, still in the dress she used to wear, the one cut down to there, the one that Tiff hated. Faded feathers in her hair. She's drinking, drinking herself even more half-blind. And it's then that it hits me. I came here to speak to her, but I can't. It's impossible. The music is too loud again. But as I look across at her, I realize I don't need to. You see, this story doesn't have an ending. Not a traditional one, anyway. Not one with answers. But that's okay, because the story of the crime that was committed back then isn't our story. It's Lola's story. 
it's not ours to question. Especially as this is a podcast and as such is in no way affiliated with law enforcement or any kind of official investigation. Yet as I stand here, almost on the exact site of where what once happened happened, and I see her sitting there so refined. Between sips, she's eating a cucumber sandwich with the crust cut off. I realize that in the end, like Tony, and like Lola's youth and mind, we're all lost in some way, and each and every one of us is just somehow trying to sail across life's bar. Music and passion were the fashion round here back then, but now it's just rubber gloves and used shoes, and that probably tells us all we need to really know. Lola takes another drink. She doesn't see me standing here. We all know why. I guess whoever did what in this story remains, like the chairs in the Copacabana that night, and unlike chairs in a food court or a prison where someone involved in this sorry tale should arguably be free. I guess the message is clear. At the Copa, don't fall in love. Cold Case Crime Cuts is presented by me, Mason Lane. Our program associates are Lance Fuller, Alexander Metaxa, Jake Yap, Alex Sivright, and Naomi Denny. Our writers are John Holmes and Gareth Saradig. Debbie Vendermillion makes original etchings to accompany each episode. View them now on coldcasecrimecuts2s.com. The other one was already taken. Original music by Jake Yap. Album artwork by Simon Fowler. Our engineers are Tony Chernside and Louis Blatherwick. The associate associate is Cliff Pathmanathan. Executive handling by Jeff Posner and David Tyler. Cold Case Crime Cuts is produced and directed by John Holmes. Thanks to Unusual Productions and Audi. Cold Case Crime Cuts is squeezed out of the studios of National American Radio at 10 Lala Plaza, New York City. And it is a proud member of the Surface to Air Sound Collective and Soluble Radio. I'm Mason Lane. Hello, diamond genital piercings for men. We make you sparkle to your very end. How may I help you? Hi, my name's Mason Lane from the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast. Am I speaking to Rico?